Amen. That song kind of just sweeps you up, doesn't it? And thoughts that are lofty and beyond uh, what's happening in our day-to-day in this world. Um, yet, at the same time, the, the measure of life, though it's quick and vapor-like, uh, is to be invested in this world in terms of the gospel going out, people being saved and transformed. And what's been on my heart lately is the authenticity of Alaska. There's, I don't know of a, well, I don't know of a place I've ever lived that's more authentic than being in Alaska. Um, the the harshness can become inspiring because we're here by God's calling, and uh, he he gets us through. We get through together, and and it's uh, it brings people to uh, really a decision point just to be here in terms of living for Christ or not. And uh, I've been praying about um, what impact we could have as a kind of a base camp in Alaska for reaching even the villages. I know that the Alaska villages are filled with little outposts, little house churches here and there. I've been part of one before a service and heard someone preach, but you know, really the, the burden is on us as uh, givers and goers and senders to be thinking about um, reaching our state for Christ, which is a, a mission field in and of itself. It's a mission field to Anchorage and for all of, all of who are around us in the highways and byways, and then um, just the responsibility to go out. And we've sent teams over the years from um, the, the school, the high school here, to go out in their relationships, a lot of network uh, that's through Cochrane Hills Bible Camp and different ways that people know each other. Voice for Christ Radio sends the messages from here to villages. And um, I don't know, something's working in my heart with all of this, um, and especially in view of Matthew 10, where we're going to be looking this morning, talking about taking on the challenge of God's great mission, the great commission to go out and to give the gospel. This great mission, which is the commission, was given in, uh, in the beginning to the 12 apostles. Jesus called his 12. He said, drop your nets, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And then he gave a particular call to these 12 to be the ones who are going to carry on the mission after Jesus leaves. He's going to die and he's going to rise and then depart. And so he's setting the stage for the mission and commission of the, 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 the greatest the greatest adventure that you could go on, which is to give the gospel and live in light of that. And that began with the 12. And the 12 were called by name in verses 1 through 4. And then in verses 5 to 15, commissioned to go out. And they were to go to their own first, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, verse 6. And then verses 16 through um, 23 is this this uh, caution that there's going to be persecution, things are going to happen, there's going to be upheaval, and the kinds of persecution that will come, you can identify as religious persecution. Remember the Sanhedrin that really went after the apostles in the book of Acts, and imprisonments, and beatings, and all of that, and that under religious governance, but then there will also be um, governmental persecution, and when the church and government merge, you always want to watch out because when that becomes the force of persecution, it becomes confusing in terms of why anyone is taking a stand for Christ at all. And 
That combination was seen through the book of Acts. We saw it in even earlier in the crucifixion of Christ, Rome and the Sanhedrin coming together, the Pharisees to get Christ. This is the kind of persecution that the church even today faces around the world. And we'll see more of this coming in with liberalism into the church and liberal ideology with the government that will try to snuff out the message and get us to shut up. Guess what? We're not going to stop talking. We're never going to stop preaching. We're always going to start, keep giving the gospel out in private means and public means as the Lord gives us life and breath. And the reason is, is because we are willing to consider the cost ahead of time. And we're willing to make the commitment to pay it at any price. And that's what Matthew 10 is all about. So you have this caution, but then there's comfort where the Lord knows um, every hop of a sparrow, every hair on our head. He knows this intimately, verses 26 to 33. And then finally, in verses 34 to 39, our new section is talking about the challenge. So Jesus builds all this as background to give the big challenge. And then he's going to, uh, verses 40 through 42, give this confirmation that it's all right. Taking a challenge like this is the right decision. Don't have buyer's remorse on this challenge that Jesus gives And I'm going to read the challenge for us just to get us started again. Verses 34 through 39. Do not boast. Sorry, let me start again. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, this is talking about the challenge that comes in the home. There's three kinds of persecution that are listed here. The first is religious, the second is governmental, and the third is in the family, in the home. And perhaps in the family, when flesh and blood is fighting against each other, perhaps that's the worst of all persecution, right? That's where it hits most deeply or deepest. That's where it's heartrending because relationships will break around the gospel. It's been said that doctrine divides, and it does. It's, it causes people to choose whether they're walking with Jesus who carries a sword or you're against him. A lot of people want to have it both ways. They want to make it all work. We're all friends. We're all just live together. You believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. But if you're really going to go into a home or a home life or a household and deal with someone's sin, which is the one thing that keeps people from Jesus, if you address sin, even in a whisper or in the context of a letter or an email, if you stand for Christ, if you're standing with the sword in the home, that sword message will cut, it'll divide, it'll open people up, and a lot of people don't like it, and they will be antagonistic to it. Uh, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He came to reconcile us with God and make peace 
um, between our being at enmity with God and then we're reconciled. He builds the bridge and makes us right with Christ, that reconciliation. He's the author of peace. We get that. Jesus is pro-home life. He's pro the institution that he created, man, woman, and child, children being raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That kind of peace is the gospel ideal. It's the mission to hearts. But at the same time, as Jesus brings peace, there's also a sword that's a message that's going to cut. And it's going to divide people on the outside. People are going to choose Christ or choose against Christ. And as we battle for truth, we're not battling people. We're not saying we don't love our parents. We're not saying we don't love our kids. We're not saying uh, any of that. We're called to love But we are called to love Jesus more and love his truth and the gospel and to address sin and let God work through the consequences of that as we accept this mission. If you're taking notes, it's what changes when you accept Jesus' challenge. What changes? Well, a sword enters into the home, and we talked about that last time. We talked about that. The sword is the word of God, and it is powerful. We don't we, we love our family members, but not at the expense of addressing what's wrong with their situation. We will always address sin. We will always address um, it in view of hope that's given in the gospel. If you want to give grace to somebody, you have to show them what they need grace for. Think about it, which upsets people. It divides people, but it also brings people to Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are, and we talked about all of that last time. It brings us to point two. What I want to talk about this morning is this. How do you prepare for this kind of conversation? How do you prepare for this kind of atmospheric change in the home? How do you prepare your own heart to go into battle and have a gospel conversation with somebody where you know it's going to break the relationship or make it awkward, right? How do you do that? What kind of steps do you need to take in your own heart first to prepare yourself Um, For this kind of mission, this kind of heartache, this kind of difficulty, it's worth it because souls are one, lives are changed through it, but we have to be prepared. Well, verse 37 brings us to this first preparation. It's a choice that's made. That's point two. A choice will be made. Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Listen, if you go into a gospel conversation and you have not fortified in your heart the decision, I love Jesus more, then you're destined to fail. You'll go in, the tears will start rolling, or the anger will spike, and you go, oh, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I'm not sure that I signed up for this kind of hardship But if you go, I love Jesus so much. He's loved me. He's forgiven me. He's made me right with him. He's given me peace inside. And so you have to, at that point, be willing to break the peace outside. That's what's going on. You're fighting not the person. You're fighting for truth. You're fighting for the sake of that person's soul as you enter into conversations that are difficult. You say, what kind of conversations are we talking about? We'll talk about biblical masculinity. Talk about biblical femininity these days. Talk about how the truth is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative in the life of um, believers and in the church and how God is sovereign over all. Talk about how he is creator for whom all of creation is, uh, is submissive to. 
Uh, he's the author of Heaven and Hell and Eternal Realities. How certain sins that are, well, all sin that's unrepented of will send you to hell. You start to just list those off and how God's saving grace comes only when we mark ourselves destitute and repent before the Lord and say, I can't save myself. These kinds of conversations stir it up. And I'm not trying to say you're trying to stir it up or you should want to stir something up or break a relationship. You want the ultimate relationship with that person, but a relationship that is put together in Christ. And and to be bold for that, you have to make a choice. You have to mark out in your own mind that Jesus is higher and greater in your own heart than anyone else. You solve this for yourself. You solve your affections and personal loves and say, Jesus, you are in control of my heart. And by doing that, you're also saying, I cannot by any means win somebody to Christ through manipulation, through flattery, through money, through promised intimacy, through promising power. All these things are ways and means that we try to move people, and those things never move the soul. You might move someone temporarily with flattery or money or what have you, but you'll never move a soul that way. You can't break a will. You can't break somebody's will into believing. You have to, as the old, uh, the old aphorism, aphorism now is uh, that we hear all the time, it's kind of goofy. You know, first secure the mask, the oxygen mask over your nose and mouth before securing it over your child. Well, that's kind of a goofy way to think of we need to solve ourselves before we go into battle. Before you say anything to anyone about Jesus, make sure you're right with the Lord. Make sure you have sanctified or set Jesus as Lord apart in your heart before you defend the faith, 1 Peter 3.15. It's evangelism, but it begins with re-solidifying where you stand in Christ. Then it's worth it. Then you're prepared. Prepare the heart first before you try to rescue somebody. You know, trying to break somebody's will is always bad. I remember my... My first uh, daughter, who's 22 now, was in the nursery, and she was probably two years old or one and a half, and she was sort of blowing the nursery room up, and I was, you know, being handed off my child, and the nursery worker's going, you know, and, and she was a, you know, a senior lady in our church and respected and all this, but what she said to me, it was my first child, so I was kind of taken aback. She said, you need to break this child's will. <laughs> Well, that may have been true, but that's really not the best parenting advice. I, what I said immediately is I need to shepherd this child's will, which is, which is, again, you hold the line in obedience, but you're guiding. You're guiding the heart. You're not trying to control. Someone in our church listening to this sermon said it's like trying to control water from coming down a hill. You can't bend and break wills. You'd have to guide um, the behavior modification dynamics even in the home where you try to win your child to Christ by isolating them from things and not allowing them to skin their knees or make choices or try things can create this religious cocoon where you have them in this cocoon of self-righteousness and then when they finally break out they just reject it altogether and rebel from it and say I'm free I'm finally free and they're free not from the gospel and you go oh I did everything I could they're free from the bondage you put them in and you'd even know you were doing that So you have to be careful in your own heart not to do that. We, I think, always want to rescue people when really what we need to do is rescue our own um, thought life and our own modus operandi. We need to be right with God as we win people to Christ. I think of uh, the life-saving 
um, mission, and I was, a, I was a lifeguard when I was in my 20s and teenage years, and there was always this west wind that would come on the east coast, and the wind's blowing, it's blowing out to sea when, it's, when you're on the east coast, and you're, it's a wind coming from the west, and it would make the waves go placid, and everything's just clean and serene, and parents go out in that with their kid, and they put them on a little inner tube or something, little mattress, little blow up or whatever, and they turn around, and suddenly the wind has them out to sea, and you're sitting there, and I had this happen to me, but um, on a particular day, this other guard was sitting there, and he looked away for 20 or 30 seconds, and there's a speck out on the horizon, and that's a child on one of these rafts, and the parent's swimming feverishly to get out to the child. By the time the parent gets out there, he's exhausted. The child's going out to the parent, and then they're both drowning. That is called a double rescue. When you're going into a double rescue, there's something that you always need to remember. Before you go out to get them, you have to put the rescue buoy around yourself so that you're swimming, even with drag behind you, to go get them. Because once you're there, if you try to pull two people in, they'll pull you under and you'll all drown. That's the point. Deal with your own heart. Deal with your own value system before you go out and try to win somebody to Christ. It's hard work. A lot of evangelism is just the soul searching of your own life. It might sound counterintuitive, but repent of your own sins. Deal with your own heart. Be in the word. Pray and ask God for power in your life. Then talk to people. Then this makes sense. Because it's really not a either or situation. It's not either love Jesus or your family. It's love Jesus more and most. For him to take first place is not unreasonable. It's not unrealistic. Verse 37, you see, is not worthy of me. The end of the verse, is not worthy of me. See that word worthy? And then it picks up again in verse 38. Follow me. If you don't take up your cross, you're not worthy of me. We're talking about valuing Christ. We're not talking either or. Either I love my mom or I love Jesus. You love your family. You love all of them, but you love Jesus more. That's what we're talking about. It's value. Jesus is not a religious choice. He's not an institutional choice. He's not a denominational choice. We're a non-denominational church. So it's Jesus is not a social justice, rescue the country choice. Jesus is a choice to submit. Jesus is a lordship choice. He is Lord. We confess Jesus is Lord. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and tongue confess in heaven and earth and under the earth. Philippians, remember that? The name Jesus, Jesus was his common name. I think the name, at the name of Jesus that Paul is referring to in Philippians is the name Lord, which is kurios in the original language, meaning master. He is our master. He is Lord. When you walk into hostile environments and talk to people about Jesus, if you're under Jesus' lordship, how protected do you feel? You feel like David going on the battlefield, right, to meet Goliath. God will slay for me. He is my God, and he protects us. He is the one whom we love. That, that choice alone is what arms us to stand in hostile environments. We fight for truth, not against people, right? Think about that. We fight for truth. We fight for the glory of Jesus in those conversations. Number two, um, not only will a sword come into your home and a choice will be made, but number three, a death will occur. A death will occur. That's verse 38. You die. You die to something. Look at verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross 
And follow me is not worthy of me. This is the challenge of life and death. This is the challenge of challenges. What you live for and what you're willing to die to, it's the death first moment. I'm willing to die for Christ. What I'm not saying by this, what Jesus is not doing here is he's not creating a false religion where death makes you more holy or martyrdom is And the bravado of martyrdom makes you a super Christian. Remember, even John the Apostle was exiled on the island of Patmos. That's how he saw the vision of the book of Revelation and wrote that there. And he died, we presume, of natural causes there. Actually, that was how it was predicted. Peter was predicted to die by crucifixion. Church history says he was crucified upside down. John was was killed or, or died by natural causes through being exiled on Patmos. So there's no hyper-spirituality in terms of how we die. The whole issue is being willing to die. And you say, well, how do I get there? How do I come to a place of willingness willingness to die? We're not not, um, part of a false Islamic religion like those who bombed um, the World Trade Center towers and then also um, the Pentagon. The Pentagon gets left out of that conversation too much in my own mind, but that also happened there. They did um, death, murder, suicide by, in their minds, being promised 72 virgins for that um, slaughter. And um, that's misguided. That's messed up. That's wrong. And um, that's not what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to be willing to die. Um, Crosses would be lined up on the roadside. Jesus wasn't the only one crucified. Crosses would be lined up on the roadside by the Roman government and killing people to warn off anyone that would go against Rome. And Jesus is saying, listen, you see those crosses? You need to be willing to follow me even if it means death, even if it means execution. You're letting go of the world. You're letting go of the values of comfort in your life to follow Jesus at all costs. During Jesus' ministry, there was a zealot, not Judas Iscariot, but a man named Judas who gathered a band of rebels. And um, he went to fight the first Roman occupation forces. And uh, there was an insurrection, but it was quelled immediately with 2,000 Jews that were crucified, um, lined across the road of Galilee. The point is not that Jesus is requiring physical death. It's just the willingness to put yourself in a situation like that. Crucifixion was, um, is the word where we get the English kind of transliterated word from crucifix, uh, the word excruciating. It's sort of the same word family. It's talking about agony, excruciating agony and pain. It's a high bar. It's a high cost to ask someone to pay. Take up your cross. When people disrespect this challenge, they they don't understand um, that it's inspiring to say, I've left this world and I'm willing to die for Christ. People will spin this in a weird way and say, well, woe is me as a Christian. I have that cross to bear. You know, that that certain in-law or that certain family member, that certain situation I have. Oh, it's my cross to bear. My life is so hard. Guess what? If you like give way to morbid um, introspection and circle the drain like that, your life will be hard. It'll get harder and harder and harder for you to bear a life like that. And if you spiritualize it and say that's the Lord's will for your life, for you to be a defeatist person, you'll be that person. But that has nothing to do with what Jesus is challenging you to. It's the exact opposite. 
I don't like negativity or defeatist attitudes. We, we're not called to sit passively on the sidelines. We're called to live for Christ and preach Christ, even if it means getting in trouble for it. It's a willingness to die to the pleasure of this world. Now, do, do I mean that you shouldn't have pleasure? No. I love being happy. I love working out. I like exercise. I like competition. I like good food. I like laughing. Uh, you know, I enjoy things. I, I enjoy creation. I enjoy stuff. Just like the wisdom literature of the Ecclesiastes and Solomon's Ecclesiastes or Song of Solomon. I mean, these, these are books that show that pleasure is part of the God's, God's gift to us in life. But at the same time, Ecclesiastes call, calls everything in our world vanity of vanity, all is vanities. Right? It just cycles and cycles and continues to cycle. Many of you today will, like me, fall prey to the secular worship of watching the Super Bowl in about an hour and a half. Some of you are shaking no. That's right. You're more godly. But I'll say this. I'll say this. It'll come and it will go. Those players will play. And they, like perhaps Deion Sanders, who was part of at least one Super Bowl, he was standing there with the confetti coming down at the end, and he'd won the Super Bowl. And the thing that he said was, this is it? Oh, this is it. And I, I know what that's like to achieve certain things, to um, have certain things happen in life. It's exciting and it's enjoyable, but a lot of times it wears off pretty quickly, right? You just It's more the faithfulness of life and having a raison d'etre. That's what satisfies a reason for being, that's what that means. A reason for being. You know why you're here. You know what you're doing. And what's more enjoyable than the victory is, uh, is the climb and the fight to get there. That's what people always say. You know, it was the climb in business that I really enjoyed rather than achieving financial success. It's, uh, it's, it's nobility in the battle. It's being a part of something, being excited about something. You watch there's so much like sort of movies and storylines about people that are in battle in extreme circumstances going for something um, persevering through adversity right I mean these are the themes that people read and feed on why because that's living that's living not just trying to reach some plateau where you're like okay I'm good and I'm done I want to work hard and I, I can't I don't know when I'll ever stop Preaching, I don't really ever plan to or, or want to. And I might be com- a complete train wreck at some age, you know, in trying to preach, but I, I just enjoy it because it's part of the battle. It's part of getting ready and getting up for something and feeding the flock. And it's kind of live and die up here to give the word of God and see people saved or converted or growing. It's the most exciting thing in the world. Whether you do it publicly like this or privately in ministry, it is a way to live. It's living on giving the truth. But you have to die to live. It's a death. Listen to how Paul defined his life in ministry. 1 Corinthians 15, 30 and 32. You might want to turn there. He says, why are we in danger every hour? I think he was hearing complaints of people that were saying, we're in danger every hour. So he's answering, why are we in danger every hour? He says, I protest. He's calling foul. I call foul. He says, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ, Jesus our Lord, I die every day. I'm in a I-could-die-any-day mode through physical martyrdom or whatever because I know that you guys are saved through this ministry. 
He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If, if the whole goal is just to die in the arena and get eaten up and then it's over, what have I gained by any of that? No, he's got an eternal mindset. Look at this. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead aren't raised, if this is all just a clown show and means nothing, let's just call it good, eat and drink. Let's go to the bars and just call it good. That's what he's saying. And this is a quote from Isaiah, where Isaiah was in this hopeless state in Isaiah 52. And they're just like, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Who cares? That's what the world does. Who cares? It doesn't matter. But if you understand that souls are being saved, people will be raised in the end. You've lost loved ones that are in the Lord. We're going to see them again. And this is what it's all about. Then it's powerful. Then it's a challenge worth accepting. Let me let you in on a little secret. Dying a death to the world is the secret of being content. Dying a death to the world is the secret of being content. I was on the phone with a guy um, in Africa. We're old, old friends from his college days. I hired him. I was a young guy then too. Hired him to be one of my resident assistants in a dorm at Masters University. He was a soccer player and he was the first full-time athlete who was also allowed to be a resident director. And so, because he was so on fire for the Lord, they said, well, we'll just sacrifice his time that way and we'll allow for it. This guy Came through master's, went to master's seminary, um, got married, and then decided he wanted to go to Uganda and start a ministry there. He went to a village and um, laid a couple soccer fields there as a soccer player and started playing with kids and preaching the gospel. And a church was born and a school was born and soccer fields grew. And he basically has a a compound ministry there that's protected by walls because it's so dangerous there. A great big family. He's adopted a bunch of kids. But I was calling him up and I said, how did you make it there 20 years so far? How did you do it? Because he's, he's a wild man. We see each other every now and then at conferences, probably see him at Shepherd's Conference coming up. He's got a ministry called SOS, Sufficiency of Scripture Ministry. Great guy. I was like, how'd you do it? Because I was thinking about my own life here. I mean, a lot of distance. We've got, you know, ball fields here. We're doing kids. We've got Christian school. It's a very parallel sort of life, except he's Uganda. (laughs) But he said, about seven years in, I died. I died. And he didn't really go on to unpack what he meant by that. He didn't have to because Jesus was already working in my heart. He died. He died to the American dream. He died to these ideals that people lay out in front of them where you begin to feel ripped off if you think like the world. He died. That's how he drove his stake in the ground, and it kind of drove a stake in my own heart to be here um, for the duration. It's just a death to self. So where you have a death, then new life begins. How does that work? Listen to this. When you make everything but Christ nothing, when nothing gives you something, it's amazing. Think about that. When nothing gives you something, it's God behind the scenes showering blessings in your life. If your life is nothing and God gives you everything, what could be better? What could be better? A new life will begin, verse 39. It says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you seek to find your life literally, that literally means that you're trying to fix yourself. This is where Jesus' challenge to the apostles is really turning evangelistic in terms of the message that they're supposed to preach. If you 
are trying to be a self-saving individual, you will lose your life. Um, The word lose here means to destroy. He who tries to fix himself is actually destroying himself. Two religions in the world, the religion of the gospel of grace through faith alone, you're saved by grace alone, or every other religion saved by works. Self-saving. If you try to save yourself, you will destroy yourself. If you're a controller, if you're trying to control your family, control your kids, control your own heart and life through external discipline uh, measures, you're actually hurting yourself. You're wrecking yourself. We can't save ourselves. He who finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The word life here is soul. We're talking about the soulish dimension, the eternal destiny of an individual. Choosing to worship your life as salvation ironically destroys your life. And you're doing this you're, it's for the sake of Christ. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life, in other words, whoever destroys the idea of trying to save yourself, you crush that idea, you do battle against that, you say, I will not try to save myself. If you are of that mindset for the sake of Christ, then you will find it. You're trying to work to find Christ, and instead you need to stop and let Christ find you. It's for the sake of Christ. Jesus requires that someone stop trying to save their soul to be saved. It's a life lost in self-denial. Remember Luther in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He said, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. But our spirit lives forever. His kingdom is forever. We need to stop trying to save ourselves. It's like the child, another life-saving, lifeguard um, lesson comes to mind. It's the idea of a, there's a lot of kids that drown in pools where people don't even see them going down. I've heard of stories where people will recover the body on the bottom. Well, they don't start on the bottom. Usually they're struggling for a little while and they're very quiet in the water. And a lot of people are out there drowning like a child that's drowning. They're not yelling for help and saying, help me. They're just under the bubbles like this. That's how a child is drowning. And I've been around pools my whole life. I've had a lot of rescues where it's this simple. You just push the kid to the wall. Like they're two feet from the wall and just whoop, and then they're okay. But they were drowning. And um, they were unable to save themselves. And that's the condition that people are in. They're trying to save themselves. And really, they just need the Lord to give them a little push. Save their hearts. Save their souls forever. We have to stop trying to save ourselves. We'll let the Lord save us. So when you side with Jesus, there's going to be some things that change in your home. Number one, a sword enters into the situation. A sword Jesus' two-edged sword of doctrine begins to divide relationships. The call of this text is to be ready in your own heart for that moment through self-denial. You have to make a choice and say, Jesus, you're better. Jesus, you're worth it. Jesus, you're worth this conversation. You're worthy of everything. And you're worthy of an awkward home life. Secondly, Secondly, a death has to occur. I'm going to commit to the Lord that I'm willing to go through and undergo anything, even up to the point of crucifixion for the sake of Christ. And then life begins and you begin to say, I'm not saving myself. Lord, you 
are saving me. You are the one who has saved me. You're the one that keeps me. You're the one that loves me. And I'm willing to value you more and more and more than anything this world offers. It's giving Jesus the value that he demands and he deserves. He gives us new life. He gives us everything that we need. It's all practically applied. Just think about this. Our mission was to find life in Jesus. And once you're saved, you know that he has found you and you have that life. You might have been pursuing him your whole life in a wrong way. And then you finally said, okay, I give. Lord, save me. And then he pursues you and lifts you up. It's amazing. Just kind of changes the equation from trying to save yourself to he saves you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm what? Found. I was blind, but now I see. And John Newton, a lot of people don't know um, his earlier years as a slave trader. And he was someone who was a fornicator on the slave ship. And he repented of that sin and believed. And that's the song he wrote out of his own testimony. Amazing grace, became a pastor and godly man. Think of the great missionary martyr Jim Elliott and his family and Elizabeth um, survived. Um, she's now with the Lord, but he went down to the Central and South American tribes and the Aka Indians. And he said this, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Think about that. It's not foolish to just die to the world, be content with the Lord Value Christ and go on mission and accept this challenge. It's not foolish to do that. You've got nothing to lose when you're over on that side of things. You know, next week we're going to be looking at the final section of this war manual. It's verses 40 to 42. This is about where Jesus confirms the 12, and that's because accepting a mission like this is hard. And Jesus, though he gives the challenge at the highest bar, he reaches down to exactly where they are to say it's worth it. It's important. It's powerful. Um, the next section in, in Matthew 11, the very next chapter, is the example of how Jesus is confirming his greatest, one of his greatest followers. He said in um, Matthew 11, 11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Guess what? This section in chapter 11 is John the Baptist doubting why he's there and whether Jesus is real or not. So John accepted the challenge and he was having buyer's remorse. And these verses that finish off chapter 10 show us how to deal with that in our own hearts and lives. So I'm looking forward to that.